Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about some wonderful privacy legislation that has been going on, and of course, one of our very favorite legislators in California. He is a privacy hero for the state of California. We're going to be talking again. I'm so thrilled he's back with us. California State Senator Joe Simidian. For those of you who haven't heard him, you're going to love it. He is so brilliant. He is articulate and he is really concerned about privacy, about consumer issues, about how to make technology work within the realms of protecting our privacy as well. So let me tell you a little bit about his background. Joe Simidian was elected to the California State Senate in November 2004 to represent the 11th State Senate District, which includes part of San Mateo, Santa Clara, Santa Cruz counties, all the beautiful places up there in Northern California. His public service over the years includes stints as a state assembly member, where he did a lot of work in privacy there, too. Uh, he was a member of the Santa Clara Board of Supervisors, the mayor of Palo Alto, and president of the Palo Alto School District School Board. He's also served as an election uh, supervisor in El Salvador and Bosnia and participated in refugee relief and resettlement efforts in Albania and Kosovo. Since serving in the legislature, Joseph Midian has been widely recognized for his commitment to service and the passion that he brings to his job. He was recently named chair of the California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy, and I hear they're going to be having some very important hearings this year. And in February 2007, he was awarded the 2007 RSA Conference Award for Excellence in the Field of Public Policy. He was recognized for his work on the mandatory security breach notification law that led the country on these issues. And in fact, that security breach law has made tremendous, has had an incredible, powerful influence on the rest of the country. He has received uh, Legislator of the Year awards from a wide range of organizations, including the California School Boards Association, the American Electronics Association, the California Library Association, uh, now, and he regularly receives 100% environmental ratings from the California League of Conservation Voters, the Sierra Club, and the Vote the Coast. 
he has, we could go on and on, but the California Journal identified Joe Simidian as among those at the top of the class during his first term in the legislature, and he continues to get more and more awards for all the great work that he's doing, and he has been quoted or he's noted in publications such as Atlantic Monthly, uh, Mother Jones, People Magazine, Scientific American. He's made appearances on CNN, Dr. Phil. Just, just I could go on and on, but I want to get to talk to him, and he is truly my hero. And thank you for joining us, Joe, all the way from Northern California. Well, I guess it's northern, not quite Northern. <laughs> well, I'm in the capital today here in Sacramento, okay. so I'm definitely in Northern California, That's... and it's good to be with you, Marian. Thank you. That was a exceptionally kind introduction. I, now I have a little too much to live up to, but it's oh, sweet of you. Thank no. you. I, you know, I, we always appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of the great knowledge that you have and your commitment. Now, tell us a little bit about that California State Select Committee on Privacy. Well, in, in the California State Legislature, we have the ability uh, to convene what are called select committees, which are really study committees that give us an opportunity to uh, look a little more deeply into policy issues that we think are uh, deserving of time and attention. And so rather than the, the sort of day-to-day work of hearing bills and moving bills through the system, this is an opportunity to sort of step back, and in this case, with respect to the broader issues of privacy, say, all right, what's out there? What's important? Uh, should we be thinking ahead a little bit? I think the public uh, is frustrated sometimes that it seems like we wait until there's a problem on our hands before we step up to the challenge. And this is a way to say, all right, let's, let's try and get ahead of the curve. Let's step back. Let's see what's coming at us and think a little bit about, in the context of privacy, what do we need to be working on? And you know, if it's done right, then over time that may well turn itself into legislation. Um, certainly that's been the case. Uh, I chaired a similar committee in the state assembly, and that's what led to the security breach notification legislation that you talked about a little earlier in the show. Well, yeah, let's talk about that again, because it really was powerful. I can't tell you how many times we have talked about that legislation on our show with attorneys who are, you know, representing companies and attorneys who've been worried about those security breaches. But everyone agrees that that initial security breach legislation that you and Senator Peace had worked on together uh, really was probably the most impactful legislation that we've had with regard to privacy in many, many years. It has really changed the way companies look at things. They've been much more accountable. And all of that really is due to the work that you started. So I honor you for that. Well, thank you. I, you know, I do think uh, it has worked well and in some ways better than we had ever expected. The, the core purpose of the legislation back in 2002 was pretty straightforward, which was that if somebody lost your personal information, uh, if they were hacked, if the information was accessed, uh, then, you know, if they lost it, uh, they should tell you so that you can take steps, steps to protect yourself. I think what I certainly didn't fully anticipate, I hoped, but really didn't fully anticipate, was the effect that it would have in terms of other states. More than 40 of the 50 states now have adopted similar legislation that also requires folks to provide that public notice. Um, that's been a, a tremendous boon to, to folks around the country, not just Californians. But it, what it's also meant, and I think you know, you've covered this on the show, is that now people have an incentive that they didn't have before to step up and improve their security. So before, you know, if your information was compromised, well, if no one had to tell you, then there was no cost and there was no public reputation uh, embarrassment. Uh, or costs associated with that, uh, with brand identity, uh, because no one had to share that information. Now, 
If people have to say, we lost your information, there's not only a cost to them in terms of providing that notice, but there's a cost to their reputation as well. That means people have said, all right, let's avoid having to go through that. Let's step up our security. Let's beef up uh, the protections we're providing in terms of confidentiality. And I think that's really been the invisible but, but highly significant impact that we could only have hoped for all those years ago. You know, Joe, the, the exciting thing about that bill, and I think the brilliance of it, was that you had that carrot and the stick. The carrot was if you encrypt that sensitive data and it's lost, you don't have to disclose it. But um, if you don't encrypt it, then you have to disclose it. So it, it really kind of gave an incentive for all these companies to to really look at technology to protect this data. And I think that was the brilliance of it, is that it really did have the double-edged sword of, well, like, and, like, and, you know, and that was great. I think, I, I think you're right, and even beyond the issue of encryption, because we didn't tell folks, here's what you have to do to secure the data, we, we had a very light touch. We said, you know, do what you want to do, but if you lose the data, if it's compromised, then you have to tell folks. You bear that cost, and you bear that cost to your reputation. So we let folks who are hanging on to that data figure out what they're going to do for security. Different folks will do it in different ways, and that's fine, plenty of flexibility. But there is a pretty powerful incentive there to get it right uh, while still not being overly prescriptive about how people go about their daily business. Right, and I think that was you know, actually a boon to businesses too because when businesses um, don't have to, you know, can can do something to protect the important sensitive data of client of their customers and their clients. I think that that establishes trust. And when when companies build trust with their customers, their customers come back. No, absolutely. When I when I got you know I'm a Silicon Valley legislator. My home is in Palo Alto, in the heart of Silicon Valley. And I you know I got a little pushback initially from folks in the high-tech world, and I said, look, uh, we know that the reason more people aren't doing business online is because they have concerns about their confidentiality and about the security of their information. It can only be to the benefit of the high-tech industries that I represent. It can only help grow e-commerce if people have greater sense of security about both the confidentiality and security of their information. Right. And the the beauty of this whole thing is that we do, so many states have followed suit and so far, and I hope this won't ever happen, is it, it hasn't gotten watered down in a federal bill yet. They've tried to, but so far it hasn't happened, and I'm hoping that it won't. Well, and that, that has been, I think, one of the frustrations, Mari, as we've watched action at the federal level. You know, there are a lot of folks who argued, wouldn't we be better off with a single federal statute? And I think the answer to that is yes, if it's a meaningful protection. But what we have seen is some folks saying, well, why don't we take action at the federal level, water down the protections that are provided, and then preempt uh, the 50 states from passing their own tougher uh, kinds of protection. And I think that would really be to the detriment of the public, you know, because most big databases have not just Californians in them, but folks from around the country and indeed around the world. If, if the California law kicks in because California residents are affected, that usually means that a company figures they've got no other option but to let everybody know from the other 49 states or elsewhere in the world. So, California's law has actually been a de facto protection for folks around the country and around the globe. Typically, they're in that same database. Exactly. Exactly. It, it has helped everybody in this country and, like you said, others. And, you know, I, I have talked about this with, with legislators in, at the federal level, and I said, well, why don't you, you know, if you want to have one bill, which I understand, you don't want to have to look at 50 different states' bills, then at least step up to the bar of the highest one, and then you don't have to worry. 
Well, and, was... and what's frustrating for me, and, you know, it's part of our political process, I understand right. that, but some of the same folks who are here in California arguing against this kind of legislation in California, saying we need to have a single national standard, are then back in Washington arguing against a meaningful national action. So, you know, that's one where you can't have it both ways. I think it's intellectually honest of me to say, yeah, a federal standard that was real and meaningful would probably be the best way to go. But I think to be intellectually honest on the other side of the debate, you then have to say, if we're going to do it at the national level, it, it needs to be real, it needs to be meaningful, it needs to be powerful. Right. We're speaking with Senator Joe Simidian, who represents the 11th State Senate District in California. He is a tremendous uh, leader in privacy, and actually not just in our state. He is really well-known throughout the country for all the work that he does on privacy because he is such a privacy leader, and he is the chair of the California Senate Select Committee on Privacy, and he's been a privacy advocate both at the Senate and the Assembly. Um, let's get back to talking about this security breach because you recently introduced, reintroduced uh, your security, your security bill uh, breach bill improvements act from last session, and tell my audience about that bill and why it was needed. Well, Mari, last year I had uh, introduced a, a measure that I thought was uh, pretty common sense. It was an update, an upgrade, if you will, uh, to the original security breach legislation. We had watched the results of the last six or seven years, thought that for the most part things had gone well, looked at what other states were doing, and realized that while many, probably most of the notices that go out are fairly helpful, um, there are some folks who are just sending out notices that provide no useful information whatsoever and too often actually confuse the consumer about what information has been compromised and what kind of risk, if any, they may face. So last year I had introduced a bill that was uh, similar to legislation in other states where I thought they got it right that said, you know, when you provide that notice, here are some basic outlined uh, items that really ought to be included in the notice so that we know that the information people get is useful to them. You know, things like what was it that was compromised, what information was stolen, um, how many folks were compromised in this way. Obviously, you're at greater risk if there were four or five records taken as opposed to four or five hundred thousand records taken. Um, and all that was designed to make sure that consumers really could take the steps they wanted to to protect themselves in the way they thought was necessary. I was uh, really probably the most surprised I've been in the 10 years I've been here now by the governor's veto uh, because we had addressed concerns from folks in industry. We had no formal public opposition to the bill whatsoever, and we ended up with a veto on the bill that really, as I say, startled me and pretty much everybody else who'd been part of the discussion up until that point. Um, I have had good success with Governor Schwarzenegger, though, in revisiting bills where I get what I consider to be a surprising veto. So I went back to his office and said, look, tell me what your concerns are. Let's see if we can't get to yes on this one, because this really is a a significant upgrade in terms of consumer protection if we could get it squared away. And as it turns out, I think the concern primarily was about the fact that we had asked that when the notice was provided, uh, an additional copy be sent over to the Attorney General's office so that we've got a place where we have a collection of all these notices and we have a sense for what's the nature and extent of the problem. And hopefully that would mean that the state legislature would do an even better job of legislating in this area in the future, and that law enforcement would have a better idea of what the nature of the problem was and could devote their time and attention appropriately. turned out the governor's office just had a problem with the fact that we were using the attorney general's office rather than the Office of Privacy Protection. The irony there was that it had been 
folks in the industry, really, uh, that had expressed concern about having the information go to the Office of Privacy Protection for some reason. So in an effort to accommodate one group of folks, we ended up uh, apparently raising issues in the governor's office. So I, I thought the conversations were encouraging. Uh, as I say, I've worked well with this governor in terms of coming back a second, sometimes even a third time, to try and see if we can't get to yes, and we're going to try again this year. Because I think it's important that when you or I or any other consumer out there gets that notice, that the notice be real and meaningful and useful so we can make some decisions about what we need to do next. Well, that's exactly right. Because when I get people calling me and they say, I received this letter, what do I do? And I said, well, what does the letter say? What What was in it? Was your social security number in there? Were your, were your bank account numbers in there? Was your health information in there? Well, we don't know. I said, well, write an email, find out what was in there. So I think you're absolutely right. People, if they know it's their health information, then they might take one avenue. If they know it's their, you know, all their bank account information or their social security number, or, you know, if it's just their credit card information without anything else, then they don't have to worry, you know, as much. Well, they that, can just and, cancel and those cards. the point that you're making, which I think is, is so often overlooked, is one piece of information by itself may not be harmful. Another piece of information by itself may not be harmful. But when you put those two together, all of a sudden, it becomes quite easy for folks to identify just who it is they're looking at and what they can do with that information. Um, The combination of just two or three pieces of information um, makes the whole greater than the sum of the parts in terms of the ability of someone to do damage to you. Exactly. So some of those letters have really been, you know, I think totally unhelpful and and just get people more frustrated and more upset and more angry at the companies. So, you know, I can see why they the companies were willing to say, yeah, this is probably a good idea. But I also think it's interesting that um, the, you know, the commercial industry did not want it to go to the Office of Privacy Protection because the Office of Privacy Protection has been in the Office of Consumer Affairs. Now it's, you know, in a different place, but still it is consumer oriented. So I think maybe that was the concern is they didn't want it consumer oriented. They wanted it in the attorney general's office in the law enforcement area but um, maybe the senator thought that that would take up too much of, of the law enforcement time. I, I don't know what he was thinking because there isn't enough. Uh, there aren't enough resources in the Office of Privacy Protection. They've had to really cut back. Well, this was, but you know, this whether wherever uh, this function ends up going, this was really simply a question about all right, who gets the email when the notice comes uh, when it is sent? Uh, because as I say, the goal is just to have a place where folks could go and take a look and see. All right. How big is the problem? Where has the problem occurred? Under what set of circumstances? And as I said, if we just had the ability, I mean, even if it sat there and nobody did anything with it for six months or a year or two years, at some point, law enforcement can check in and say, all right, let's take a look at the problem and see how it's been developing. The next time the legislature takes action in this area, we should have that data available so that we make good and thoughtful choices. I think it's important for us to be looking at the impact of the laws we pass, asking ourselves what's working and what's not. One of the ways you do that is by knowing, all right, what's the nature of the problem and how great is that problem? You, you know, we don't want to unnecessarily burden business if it turns out the problem's pretty minor, modest. On the other hand, if there's a real problem, we've got to step up. You don't know that if you don't have some place where we've got a collection of these notices to get a handle on the problem. Exactly. You know, I, I am, am just in awe of all the patience that you have because... <laughs> You know, I learned enough when I was helping with legislation how, you you know, you get your foot in the door one year and then you go back and you get your other foot in the door and then hopefully you get your whole body in the door and you get your, your legislation passed. But that, 
you got to have a lot of patience because it takes well, a and, long and, time. You know, Mara, I know folks out there have mixed opinions about term limits and, you know, there are pluses <laughs> and minuses, and that's a debate for another day and another show. But one of the things I will say is part of the problem with term limits is people will just outweigh you if they can. You know, I was fortunate that after four years in the state assembly, I was able to run for and win a seat in the state Senate, and that means that I'll, you know, be able to serve a total of 12 years here before I'm termed out in 2012. But had that not happened, I would have been gone after four years, and I wouldn't have been able to come back and seek this improvement, in my view, on the work that I did back in 2002 with Senator Peace. So it's because of the nature of the process, because it is too often maddeningly incremental, you, you really do need a few years in grade in order to be able to keep an eye out, see how it's working out, and keep improving. Or, in the case of this most recent issue, come back again and again and again. This will be the fourth year uh, that I've tried to see if we couldn't make some progress on this one, and I'm optimistic. But, um, you know, things go wrong for a variety of reasons, and you just got to keep coming back. Well, if you need any help, I can write a letter to the to the governor for you well, or something you. like that. I should really do that. Send in my book and tell him why it's so important for people who are concerned about becoming victims of identity theft and how it's really very, very important. And I honor you and support this bill because it is very consumer oriented. We're speaking with Senator Joe Simidian, who is the privacy hero in the California Senate. He is the chair of the California State Senate Select Committee on Privacy. He's luckily going to be with us until 2012, and he is a hard worker. And, and, you know, I just wanted to say, Joe, that you're absolutely right. I'm not so much for term limits because it takes a while first to even understand how all the system works. And like you said, to get these bills passed, it takes year after year. And plus, then once you see how something works, if you have that experience, you can improve the bills. So it just doesn't make sense that you go in for a short period of time. And then by the time you, you know, you finally catch up and understand what's going on, then you're out. It's well, crazy. And, you know, for those of us who are here, I think term limits means we have an obligation to pick up the work of the people who were here before us and to try and hand off our work when we're, it's time for us to walk out the door. Um, you know, that's just the nature. Uh, the system, at least for the time being, is what it is, and I understand and accept that. And as I say, I, I try to build on the work that others did before I got here and um, understand, as I say, that, you know, it's time for me to walk out the door. I, I need to have worked with other members of the legislature, try and pull them into the work that I've been doing, and hopefully they'll see it as worthy of carrying on as, as they continue their careers in the legislature. Right. Well, then we're going to have to send you to Congress like, like Jackie Spear, right? <laughs> <laughs> Follow over her over there because she did a lot for privacy, too, when well, she was in California. No, yeah, I was thinking of, uh, actually, I was thinking of former state Senator Spear and uh, Senator Liz Figueroa and Deborah Bowen and yep. uh, Senator Kevin Murray. All of these are people, whether you agreed or disagreed with the approach they took, who had a significant interest in Senator Peace, of course, who had a significant interest in uh, privacy issues. Yes. And they've all moved on as a result of term limits. Uh, and, um, you know, we, for whatever reason, we just haven't seen quite as many members take up the privacy issues. I think that's in part because they're complex issues, as you know. And it's because they're they're not always um, issues that uh, the public gravitates to right away. People I talk to tell me, of course, they care about their privacy, but um, you know, these are not always sort of front page issues, if you will, uh, for which there's recognition. So um, I think it, it is going to be important, as I say, to sort of keep bringing people along and make sure that 
as individual members move on, there's somebody there to pick up the work in the privacy arena. Yeah, and you know, you are so right about that. And in terms of privacy, people do not recognize uh, the the privacy invasions or the privacy problems that they have until they become a victim of identity theft or a victim of something else that happens to them online or you know, like the the one I was talking to you before about how these kids, you know, had gotten free laptops and all of a sudden they're, they're home eating candy and the school is watching them thinking they're doing drugs. So, yeah. you know, and, and I do think people you... are sometimes, you know, I, I, one of the things about the security breach bill that I think, you know, should apply pretty much across the board with perhaps a few exceptions is, you know, if it's sauce for the goose, it's sauce for the gander. And, uh, you know, in the security breach bill, we regulated not just you know, private businesses, but state government agencies and entities as well. I mean, if I hear of one more person in, you know, the UC or CSU or the state bureaucracy that's left their laptop behind an unlocked door with personal information on it, I'm I'm just <laughs> yeah. you know, going to be at my wit's end here. But, you know, uh, one of the areas that we're looking at this year, Mario, you and I have talked about a little bit, is uh, what about the fast-track privacy? You know, this yes. is the RFID technology, the radio frequency identification technology that allows you to zoom across the bridge uh, and have your toll billed automatically. But what that also means is that somebody's got a record of your movements, uh, where you were and what time you were there. And then when you get across that bridge and you see the sign that says, you know, it's only 22 minutes uh, to get to the airport, well, the way they know that, of course, is that some driver has gone over the bridge and then been tracked when he or she showed up uh, passing by the airport. And, you know, all of that is information that is, in the hands of either government or a contracting agency, could be private agency, and you you wonder, are there any protections there? Is there any security? Is there, you know, uh, the ability for someone to sell that information? So, um, you know, we're taking a look at that issue this year uh, with a new piece of legislation, uh, Senate Bill 1268, that um, is going to try and put some limits around just how that information gets used, uh, prohibiting the sale of that information. You know, I, I... I'm anxious these days that everybody sees a revenue opportunity around the corner and is sometimes a little insensitive to what the costs are in terms of privacy or public safety. And, um, you know, I also think that holding on to that data for year after year after year is a bad idea. That just means that there's a database of your movements over a long period of time that's sitting there for somebody to use or misuse. So I, I think it's time for us to get our arms around that problem. And, and this is another one where um, you know, I think government needs to look to itself and say, how are we doing? Where, you know, we talk a good game and we want others to do the right thing, but are, are we doing the right thing in terms of protecting the data that we're collecting in some form or fashion from the general public? Right. And can that data be used in divorce court? You know, I mean, and all that's, those... that's actually how it has come up is yes. we've, we've in fact had some news stories where, you know, there you are flipping through the paper and turns out somebody has subpoenaed the records and when the husband or wife said they were in one place doing one thing, apparently they were in another place doing another thing, Marion. We'll just right. let it go with that. <laughs> and, you know, we are in a state that has no-fault divorce, but still, you know, people can use this and embarrass people. And, uh, you know, it's true. When, when As we talked before, when you collect uh, something for one purpose, it shouldn't be used without uh, without the permission of someone to use it for another purpose. Well, I mean, and that's, should you're, be just you're going right to the issue of informed consent. Transparency, you know, I, I, yeah. Um, I try very hard to say, you know what, if a consumer wants to make an informed judgment about surrendering their privacy in some way, that's fine. But it's got to be an informed consent. They've got to know what the consequences are. Um, I think most folks who are uh, enjoying the convenience of driving across the bridge with their fast track are probably 
unaware that you know 20 minutes later their uh, location is being tracked and uh, stacked in a database somewhere, and maybe they'd be troubled, maybe not. And my point is that's their judgment call. They ought to be able to make that judgment, but they can't make it if they don't know. Right. You know, the other thing you think about is, okay, if you're if you're going somewhere and maybe you sidetrack, you, you're on your way somewhere for work, but you get sidetracked to stop at your doctor's office. Is your employer going to be able to get that and, and fire you because of that, because yeah. you didn't go directly there? So there's a lot of other issues that could come up that people should say, well, what do I care? You know, they have to think about little things that could happen to them. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy, and we're speaking with my privacy hero and the privacy hero for the whole state of California, actually, California State Senator Joe Simidian. Joe, you know, I wanted you to tell the story that you had told a couple years ago on my show about how you had to help the... um, the the legislature understand RFIDs when oh, sure. tell that we, story I love it you know we we <laughs> were uh, legislating in the area of this RFID technology which look is a it's a great little technology it's a minor miracle this is you know most of us have it in some sort of an ID card or access card to our condominium or apartment or whatever it is and it's really pretty simple at one level the you come up to the reader and the reader sends out a little radio wave that says hey who are you and what makes you think you've got a right to come in and you know, your card uh, has a little antenna and picks that up and then sends back a little radio wave that says, hi, I'm State Senator Joe Simidian, and I have a right to enter the Capitol. And click, click, the door opens, and into the Capitol you walk. Well, you know, whether you're using that for your parking garage or, in my case, for access to the State Senate, it, it raises the some potential for misuse or abuse because, you know, anyone with a reader can simply pick up that same information, and uh, it gets worse from there. And I really was struggling. I, I would keep making the, the appeal to my colleagues in committee hearings, and, you know, they, they sort of they didn't like get they it. were getting it, but they, <laughs> if I could see the forehead sort of scrunched up and people not really tracking why this was important. And finally, one day I turned to some of the folks I've been working with on these issues and said, look, I keep explaining how this can be abused. Do we actually know somebody who knows how to do this? And everybody I was working with said, oh, yeah, sure. I said, well, could you get them in here? So all of a sudden, I come into my office one day, and they said, you've you know, got somebody here. Uh, and I said, well, who, who's this? And he introduced himself, and uh, he looked like he was from Central Casting for a Hacker more. I mean, it was just, you know, the, the black jeans, the black T-shirt, the sort of scruffy leather jacket, the, what I call granny glasses. Perhaps I'm showing my age there a little bit. And sort of longish, stringy, uh, blonde hair. And I introduced myself, and he introduced himself. And I said, well, you know, what can you do? And he said, well, do you have your card handy, my, you know, ID card with my photo on it? And I said, sure. And he said, well, do you have one from the assembly members? And I said, well, I can go get one. I went across the hall and borrowed one from a colleague. And uh, he said, now, you know, let me have those if I could for a second, Senator. I said, fine. I handed him the cards. And he literally handed them right back to me. He split second after I'd handed them to him. And I said, I thought you needed the cards. And he said, oh, I'm done. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you're done? He said, I'm done. I said, well, what have you, what have you done? He said, well, I've read the cards. And I said, in that split second when I just, and he said, yeah. He said, because the little laptop computer he had there in front of him had read the cards. And um, I said, well, anything else? And he sort of smiled and said, well, yes, I've actually cloned the cards. (laughs) And I said, meaning what? And he said, well, meaning now that anything your card could do or your assembly colleague's card could do, I can do. Mm. And I said, for instance, and he said, well, I now have access to the same secure locations you have access to. He said, and they smiled and said, except when I come in, it will register as State Senator Joe Simidian who's come into the building. <laughs> Identity theft. And I said, well, 
you know, could you wait right here for a minute while I call the sergeant at arms and uh, who provides security for us? And the sergeant at arms came, and we got the CHP, and we went outside to give it a, t- a test run. And sure enough, he walked right up to the members-only secure entrance to the state capitol basement and um, let himself in in a split second. And the read, of course, was not his name on the cloned card. The read was my name, and um, you know, could have come back at three in the morning had we not changed the code in the system. So. Uh, and that's still, you know, then some people said, well, but, you know, you gave them the cards. That was an artificial. I mean, I thought, my goodness, how much more do I have to do? <laughs> so finally, we sent somebody around with a reader just wandering around the halls of the Capitol over their shoulder uh, for, you know, probably an hour and a half, two hours, one afternoon. And they came back with nine readings on cards, seven of them it. for uh, Capital ID cards and two of them for uh, somebody else's card that they'd read for some other purpose altogether. Exactly, and this is this is how you got them finally to look at some of your RFID reg- legislation. That's right, and, and again, that's another one where uh, you know, for members of the public who are frustrated, the the persistence, uh, you know, is really necessary. So we got some setbacks from the governor, got a veto that really disappointed me back in 2006. Came back with something a little more modest, a little more narrowly tailored. Uh, you know, we won a couple, we lost a couple, but. Even when we have those kinds of setbacks, Mari, you know, then people are on notice. So I, I know when I deal with the DMV folks now that any thoughts they had about putting RFID into California driver's licenses so that we had 20-plus million Californians with a technology that might or might not be secure, that might or might not have limits on the content of the information, they they pretty much have understood that any move in that direction is going to meet with more than a little skepticism now that those issues have been aired in front of the legislature. So it's even, as I say, when you don't have a clear win on something legislatively, it, it means you know untold millions aren't being spent uh, to create a set of driver's licenses that end up compromising rather than enhancing our security. Right. And I remember when this whole thing started, when the schools, I think your office had gotten a call because some of the schools had had uh, student IDs. We, with we our, had a school yeah. district here in Northern California yeah. that simply issued RFID identity cards to every kid and required them to wear them to school every day without engaging the parents, without talking to the families about what this was all about. And you know, my own view is that we want to be respectful of families' decisions and choices about protecting the privacy and the personal safety of their own kids. Um, and, you know, we took it from there. I was uh, surprised and disappointed, uh, although the governor did sign a couple of my bills in this area. Uh, I had one that would simply have said, you know, you can't use this for attendance or tracking purposes without the consent of the parents, just that signed permission slip at the beginning of the year. Uh, I thought, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger, to his credit, I thought, you know, he's he'll be he'll be supportive. He'll he'll want to see families um, have that right rather than have it simply be up to the school districts. And and he's a I, daddy, right? And, that's right. And and he's been, you know, as I say, I've worked very well with the governor on a lot of these issues, but on that one, I got a veto. And mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that um, before I try that one again, I'm going to need a new governor in the governor's office. And <laughs> uh, but I'll come back on that one because I really do think. We ought to be empowering parents to make those decisions for their kids and their families. Um, the especially with all these, is, is just too great. Well, you know, especially when you're talking about how the guy came in and was able to clone and, and pretend to be you. Just imagine what could happen with these guys who abduct children. I mean, well, this I is mean, that, a scary got, thing. You know, you've got the ability, uh, you know, to do. Uh, people say, well, if it's a unique identifier and the name isn't there, then what good is that? Well. 
you can establish a pattern. You can start to track somebody's movements. You can discover that you know somebody is swimming in the pool by themselves every morning at 5:30 uh, to get practice in before the school day starts. Um, you can take that information, clone it, and suddenly have access to any place that that person. And you know the irony is this was being pitched as a way to take attendance. And when we got got the conversation going in the Senate Education Committee, people said, "Well, wait a minute. You know what happens when?" Johnny gets Susie's card and Susie gets Johnny's card, kids will be kids and right. you know they show up in the class and it's you know they're not really themselves and at that point somebody said well oh you you actually do have to then confirm it visually and somebody <laughs> said well then what's the value of that then I'm just taking attendance <laughs> twice so it was a sort of an interesting circular conversation but exactly. and again I, I want to be clear I think the technology is great it has a million and one good uses um, billions of these are used in ways that are I think appropriate every year but consumers need to be able to make informed choices. The public has a right to know. There need to be some privacy protections built into the cards, which is easy to do. The incremental cost is not that great. We also ought to be saying if it's going to be a government identity card, aren't there some limits on what's on that card? Should your personal health insurance be on the card that entitles you to Medi-Cal? I don't think so. I mean, should your personal health information, excuse me, be on that card? Uh, you know, should your home address be on a card that is issued by a school uh, for attendance tracking purposes? I don't think so. But again, I'm not so much interested in making those choices for other folks. I'm interested in making sure that the public has the ability to make those choices for themselves. Right. And the whole idea is a lot of this is not transparent. So people don't even really know what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? Exactly so and, right. and so many times people are collecting more information than they actually need, like what you said. They, they don't even need to have an address on there, or they don't need to have all this other information on there. And this is a, a whole issue for privacy is we always say never collect more than you need. That's right. And always be transparent about what you are collecting and what you're collecting it for and how you're going to use it and where you're going to use it and give people an opportunity to at the very least opt out, even though I liked op, I like opt in much better, but you know at least be transparent, and that's the thing that is uh, so frustrating. And never hold on to it longer than you really need to, exactly. because that is just an invitation for someone to come along and compromise your confidentiality. Right, and not only that, I mean you have more liability too if right. if you keep things around for a really long period of time. I had this uh, case where about a, a hundred. Uh, former employees of of a company down in San Diego had um, had their identities stolen, and we found out that these old old records had been kept in these boxes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and some bottle washer got access to a room that she shouldn't have even gotten access to because she was a bottle washer. She shouldn't have had access to these other uh, offices. And she took home all of these banker boxes filled with all this past uh, personnel information that had social security numbers and birthdays and proceeded to sell this to all of her friends. And it became a lawsuit. And there was a lot of money paid by this company because they didn't need this stuff. They didn't need to keep it. And it wasn't even electronic. So you're right. Never keep it more than you need. That's absolutely for sure. We're now, speak- you know, one of the areas that I think is going to be a fascinating area, it's an emerging area of the law, and we're going to step into it this year here in California, is the issue of uh, false impersonation uh, online. Yes. Uh, and uh, we're looking at it this year in the context of what happens when somebody sends out an email using your name as part of the email address. Right. What happens if somebody goes to a social website and sets themselves up using your name and your photo perhaps as 
uh, and starts to communicate in, quote, your voice, end quote. And, you know, these are what's challenging about these cases, and it's a constant struggle, as you know, on the privacy front, is to what extent do we want to use existing laws to govern the misuse of emerging technology, and to what extent do we actually need new laws? And, you know, I think you want to, you know, you, you don't want to pick winners and losers. You don't want to play favorites. You want to have a level playing field. I think I've used every cliche in my arsenal on that one, Mark. <laughs> that being said, you know, sometimes you just have to say the world changed, and we need to make sure that the law changes in a way that's responsive to the demands of a changing world. So, you know, on when somebody starts sending out emails with an email address uh, that uh, purports to be yours, they've they've stolen your identity, and it may not be for personal gain. It may just be to make mischief. Or but, revenge or whatever. Or, exactly. And uh, similarly with uh, social websites where people are simply uh, hijacking somebody else's identity uh, to make mischief, cause, cause pain. Um, and here again, as I say, the challenge is how much of this can we deal with uh, under existing law, you know, a lot of which dates back to the 1800s, for gosh sakes. So um, we're going to take a look at this this year. It's, it's been an issue I've heard more and more about in my district, a pretty technologically sophisticated group of folks, which means both that there are more people making mischief, but also more people who are sensitive to an understanding of the potential consequences and the importance of working in this area. Let me tell you, I have dealt with a lot of people who've had this problem, and I actually have a chapter in my new book about this. But one of them, I'll send you the the New York Times article, because I got a call from a woman, Claire Miller, in New York, who found out after all these men came to her door and uh, told her that they thought that, um, you know, they were ready to be with her when she was hot to trot. And she was in shock. She said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we saw your online, you know, uh, on the website, the social networking that you were interested. And you put your phone number and you put your address in Manhattan. And she was terrified. She called the police in Manhattan and they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't take a a police report. So she calls me in California. And long story short, I was called by Tom Zeller of the New York Times, and I told him, this is happening a lot. I want you to do a story on it. And Claire was willing to put her name out there and tell her story. And what I had her do, which was, I don't know, it was kind of an analogous to regular identity theft, but I was able, once she got the police report, we used the the kind of provisions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act that once you have a, a police report and, a, and an affidavit from the, that you complete from the FTC, that you send that to whoever has the documentation, you know, the, uh, the ISP, and um, ask them for all of the documentation of that account and tell them it's fraudulent. And they have to give it to you without a subpoena. And we did eventually find out it was an old roommate from 10 years ago. How do you like that? So I think there are some things that I could help suggest to you that we've done that that has worked, that we've been able to find out. But it is a real tough one and a real scary one that that I heard from a lady was that someone took her picture and put her picture making her look as if she was a prostitute and she was a, a, a very high-valued model, clean model, yep. and put her picture on a German website. And, you know, we were able to get that down. But it is a real tough problem. We've got that with students, young students finding out that someone is pretending to be them either for like a joke or for revenge or, or sometimes for money. 
People will pretend to be you and then they're asking for money or pretending to you be you and put up a website and uh, say that they have a company that you pay, believing that it's really you. So, yeah, that's and the, a, that's and the a other huge practice, of course, with domain names is yes. that once they expire, if people purchase them in bulk at relatively low cost, then you've got hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of domain names where uh, people are misdirected from the place they thought they were headed to a place they had no interest in going or thought they had no interest in going, only to discover that they've arrived someplace that they had not planned uh, to on the web. So yes. it's a... Um, this is a huge issue, this yeah. online identity theft. It's so easy to do, Joe, that I, th- I am so glad to hear that you are planning to do something about that. And, and please let me know how I can help you, because I hear this stuff quite a bit. Well, all of the... Uh, information on the bill as it currently stands, and it's still in essentially placeholder form, uh, Mari, so uh, I don't want your folks rushing to the web, but is we can find the Senate Bill 1411 will be the bill number as we move forward on these issues, and uh, all of that information is available, you know, easily accessible on the Senate website and on my website, com. So, and they can send you some stories that they've experienced. Absolutely. And I will and it, do that, as too. I say, I think... Um, you know, it's always tough because in this case we're talking about not creating a new crime, actually, but adding this uh, particular behavior to the definition of a crime already in the statute. And, you know, given our overcrowded prisons, people are going to say, eh, do we really want to be putting more pressure on the system? Um, and similarly, we'll make it a private right of action, meaning somebody can sue them for themselves if they feel that they want to. And But again, we'll get pushed back on, you know, do we really want to clog the courts with these kinds of cases? But absent some kind of deterrent, we're just going to see this behavior proliferate. And, you know, the question I'm going to be asking my colleagues is, do you really think, Senator so-and-so, someone ought to be able to take your name, put it in an email, and speak as if they were you without any consequences? Because I think it's going to be awfully tough for members of the legislature to say, yeah, sure, that strikes me just fine. Yeah, we may have to do it to them. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I know. No, but uh, you know what? I do think what needs to happen also is that there needs to be a streamlined way for this stuff to be taken down, especially with social networking, because that issue, if you find out that somebody has been doing it and they don't have any money, like you could get a private right of action, but if nobody has any money, if it was done for revenge, the, the point is, is it has to be taken down in a streamlined, expedited manner. And that's a real issue for these victims of identity theft is right. they want it down, and that's more of a problem. So we need to be able to set that up. And I don't know if you have that actually in your bill. We're still the work is the bill is still a work in progress, which is what we always say here in Sacramento. We haven't <laughs> figured it out yet, Mari. Okay, but, well I'll uh, talk to Melissa about that. <laughs> I mean, these are going to be interesting and important and challenging issues because, as I say, we're we're treading into a relatively new area of the law here, and there's always this tension about do we really need a new law. And, you know, I, understand. I think that's a legitimate question to ask, if we can work with the existing statutes. But I have heard, uh, you know, once too often at this point from folks in the district I represent that they had a problem, and uh, just as in the story you related, they went to the police, they went to the DA, and it's not that people weren't sympathetic, they were, but they said there's just nothing there we can use that makes this a crime. Well, you know, if that's what folks are hearing from the DA and that's what they're hearing from the local police department, then I think it's probably time for us to step in and make it clear this kind of behavior is against the law. Right. And sometimes these um, 
you know, these websites say, we won't take it down unless you get a lawyer. And and that's really unfair to these victims as well, because here they are victimized, and then they have to get a lawyer to help get this stuff down. I mean, yeah. it's it's not right. We should have a, a way for that people should be able to get it off without that. So let's talk about um, what do you personally do to protect your own personal information, and, and what do you recommend to other consumers? You know, the the one that, um, and, you know, I don't want to hold myself out as a paragon of privacy virtue, Mari, because, I, again, I, I think each of us makes our own judgments. And so, for example, as a public official, my privacy expectations have to be a whole lot lower than the average person who listens to the show. Um, and, and that just comes with the territory, and I understand that and accepted that when I ran for office. But uh, one of the ones that for me is surprisingly common um, is when I'm asked to provide my Social Security number to folks who have nothing at all to do with my Social Security. And um, that's one where I just politely decline, and I can tell from the reaction I get that apparently most people just go right ahead and hand that information over. Um, I, I just think that's one where... Far too often, people just, you know, are asked as if it were no big deal and hand the information over as if it were no big deal. And as I say, a polite no thank you is pretty much all it takes in most cases. And that's one where it's just far more common than I would have ever have guessed uh, as the years go by. Yes, yes. Now, you've, re- you've also introduced some other legislation that I want to give you a chance to talk about because you've been very consumer-oriented, but also respectful of, of businesses. Um, let's talk about you pushing the 33% renewable energy for California. That's a real huge issue. Well, and it, it, this, this was, a, a disapp- it was probably the biggest disappointment last year. I, years ago, I had authored the legislation that has California pushing for 20% renewables by the end of this year, 2010. And, you know, it has been, I think, very helpful in pushing us towards that goal. The obvious next step to me is to say, all right, let's say 33% by 2020. And, make that real. Uh, and uh, this is one, again, where the governor and I, in theory, agree. He says he wants 33% by 2020. I say I want 33% by 2020. But we have a little difference of opinion about how to get there. So I had a bill uh, like this that was vetoed last year. Uh, and um, the biggest disappointment of mine, because it's such a significant bill in terms of job creation. But, you know, I went back to the governor again on this one and said, let's try again. And uh, to his credit, he and his folks have said, all right, let's try again, see if we can't get to yes. And, uh, you know, it's yes, it's a good environmental bill, Mari, in terms of clean air and climate change. And, you know, yes, it's a good bill in terms of just sound energy policy because we shouldn't have all of our energy eggs in one basket. That's what allowed folks to, in part, allowed folks to manipulate the energy system uh, earlier in the 2001 2002 time frame and, and, I, and yeah, I hate to be that, so so reliant on you know the middle east well, with that's all right. the problems that's the thing that drives my it, mind know, it would mean that we could have if we had our own sources of energy that would mean we'd have an american foreign policy based on american values and interests rather than right. our energy needs right but you know at this particular time if you know i think the thing that that needs to be said over and over is this is an economic development bill of immense proportions. I mean, people talk a good game on clean, green jobs, but you got to do something to actually develop those jobs here in California. And if California would say 33% renewable energy 2020, that would be a clear signal to the market that we're serious, and those investment dollars and those tens of thousands of jobs in that emerging industry would be here in California, which is where I'd like to see them go. So I'll keep pitching on that one, and I'm, I'm 
I'm fairly optimistic. I, you know, as I said, we um, we have a pretty good track record in my office of working with this governor to come back a second or even a third time on a particular piece of legislation. And on this one, we both have that 33 percent by 2020 goal. So we'll see if we can find a way that uh, both works for both of us. Well, you're such a good collaborator anyway. You know, I know that to be true about you. So, you know, if you don't succeed at first, I know you keep trying in different ways to to get everybody involved and to cooperate and try and get it done. So I I have all the faith in you. Well, thank you. You know, when I was a kid, my father gave me a piece of advice that was very dad-like, and I thought it was hokey at the time, and I probably rolled my eyes. But he said, you know, a winner is a loser who didn't quit trying. And as I say, at the time, I kind of went, you know, okay, Dad, thanks. Um, but, you know, I think over the years, that's proven to be a good piece of Dad advice, which is, um, you know, you lose the first or second time, you come back, and you try yeah. again and again. Yeah. And uh, Persistence pays off. It does, and it certainly <laughs> pays off in the political process uh, where, you know, sometimes it takes more than a single effort or two to make a good thing happen. Now, let's talk about that hands-free and, and texting law in our state. Yeah. You know, that drives me nuts when I'm driving down the street and I'm seeing somebody with their head down and they're texting or, or, or they got one hand texting on their, on their phone and the other hand on the wheel. It scares me to death. Well, this is another one of those cases where persistence paid off. Uh, I introduced the bill for hands-free uh, cell phone use here in California on the highway uh, back in 2001. Couldn't get it passed in 01, 02, 03, 04, or 05. And then finally, sixth time, uh, 2006, got the hands-free bill passed uh, and signed by the governor, Governor Schwarzenegger. And then it took effect in 2008. And uh, the numbers since then have been really encouraging, Mari. We, um, in the immediate aftermath of the bill taking effect, the new law taking effect, we saw a 20% reduction in fatalities on the highway, a 20% reduction in crashes on the highway, Wow! 700 fewer lives lost every year, 75,000 to 100,000 fewer crashes every year. And, you know, the obvious question is how much of that can you attribute to the new law? And hard, hard to know, but I don't think it's just coincidence. And the one thing we do know is the CHP, who keeps data, on uh, the right kind of data that they should keep, by the way, keeps data on, you know, just um, which distractions have been involved in which accidents, said they saw a 40 to 50% drop in cell phone-related distracted driving accidents in the immediate aftermath of the law passing as compared or contrasted with all the other distractions where the numbers held steady. So That's terrific. It was just, you know, great results, uh, but uh, the one common concern I've heard is that the fines have been too modest, $20 for a first offense and $50 for a second offense. So I've introduced legislation this year that would beef those fines up and uh, would also mean a point on your driving record if you were in violation. And the CHP tells me that they think that that will serve as a more significant deterrent. And, you know, I'd like to see the day when we get to the same high level of compliance that we've achieved over time for uh, seat belts and that we're still struggling to achieve with respect to drunk driving. Right, right. Yeah, I know you're a real proponent of education, too, and you were very local in the push for race to the top funding. Why don't you talk about that real quickly, too? Well, just, uh, you know, the, the Obama, this was a tough call because the Obama administration said, look, we're going to put some money on the table and race to the top, and if you are prepared to reform your systems, we're going to give you priority for that money. And I thought that was smart of the president in terms of creating a sense of urgency. On the other hand, you didn't want to undo what was hopefully thoughtful educational policy developed over a period of years in just a couple of months on the fly. So 
Um, you know, I had colleagues who worked in this area quite a bit. Uh, I weighed in uh, to make sure that as we're trying to help one group of kids, we didn't disadvantage any other kids and by turning the system upside down. And I also had some data issues, back to our privacy concerns, uh, in terms of I'm trying to create a statewide database for educational data so that we know what works and what doesn't. So we spend the public's money wisely, and that to the extent that there isn't enough money, we do the best job we can for 6 million kids in the K-12 through classrooms, uh, consistent with their privacy protection, of course. And uh, ultimately, uh, we, we needed some work in that area to help us qualify for Race to the Top funds. We got that done, and now we're just going to have to wait and see uh, what the administration does. And my hope and expectation is that California will be eligible for and uh, be awarded significant funds out of that first round of applications. Yeah, you know, and I keep hearing all these things. Just this morning on the radio, I was listening about how these teachers were coming on and they were having some kind of a talk show and talking about how the the classes have increased in size, almost doubled in, in some of these classes and how difficult that is for the teachers to really address yeah. all these kids. So, you know, it is a problem. I used to teach many, many years ago. So I know what that's like when you have a large class versus a smaller class. And even even now, you know, at UCI, I had like double the amount of students in the class. So I didn't get to get get to do as much right. as I wanted to do with them. And if we had a good data system here in California worthy of the name, which is something I've been working on now for the past several years and we'll keep working on until the day I walk out the door, that would allow us to say, all right, let's take a look at a thousand classrooms where we had smaller class size. Let's take a look at a thousand classrooms where we didn't. Was there a difference in the result? Difference in the results? Did this group of kids fare better than that group of kids? If so, how much better? Right. And if so, was it worth the money we spent? Those are the kinds of decisions that we should be able to make. As I say, as both as we try to spend dollars wisely, but also as we try and do best for the kids. And you can't really do that until you've got a statewide database system worthy of the name. And uh, you know, I'm trying to drag us kicking and screaming into the 21st century here and put that together. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, we only have a, a just a couple seconds left here, so I just want you to give your website and uh, tell us how we can uh, what you know how we can contact you. Well, uh, you know, I I should be easily reached at my email address, which is uh, Senator at sen.ca.gov. That's senator.sumidian at sen.ca.gov. And my website uh, for the Senate here is uh, senator.sumidian.com. And uh, that'll get me to get you to the official website for my state Senate office. And the one other thing I would say, Mari, is, you know, I'm on Facebook these days. So uh, you're brave. No, so <laughs> I, I would say, uh, please come come find me on Facebook. And uh, that's a good way to get occasional updates about what we're doing, not just in the privacy arena, uh, but uh, also uh, on all the other things that we're working on here in the Capitol. Well, we applaud you for all your wonderful work, and we will have you back again next year to tell us about all the wonderful bills that you passed this year. My pleasure, <laughs> and congratulations on your new book, by the way. I've had a chance to give it a read in its uh, draft form, as you know, and I think um, folks are going to find it immensely helpful. It really is a cut-to-the-chase helping aid. And we will try and help you with your legislation, and thank you so much, Senator. We All appreciate right. your time. You take care. You can take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You can see our upcoming guests, read their bios. You can also look at the um, archived interviews and 
download podcasts and see who we interviewed before. And most of all, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email as well right from there. And we look forward to having you join us next week. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.